So we uh, find our way back into Daniel, and we're going to pick up in Daniel 6, starting in verse 10. This is the last of the stories of Daniel. The latter half of Daniel is primarily his visions, and that will be a fun adventure in and of itself. But this is, in some ways, a kind of capstone to this narrative portion of Daniel, uh, as we'll see. And you might recall from a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter 5, the Neo-Babylonian Empire fell. Uh, Daniel was there for the collapse of uh, Israel's great enemy. And, of course, who came in were the Persians. Uh, and in particular, this, this guy, Darius the Mede. And, uh, and as chapter 6 starts, the, Daniel has found himself again in a prominent position. And a bunch of the other officials are jealous of Daniel, and they're looking for a way to entrap him. And so they trick the king into making a law so that no one can pray to anyone, any god, anything, uh, for 30 days, except to pray to the king. Of course, ancient Near Eastern kings were often thought of as being divine or semi-divine, so um, that all made sense to them. And so, we pick up in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, "Mm, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, 
because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had, ca- who had <clears throat> maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones to pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this has been given to us that we would know the Lord, that we would know his love and his grace and the power of the Spirit at work in us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us your word, that we're not left to our own devices, but rather you have spoken. So give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are softened to it. And give us minds and hands that are willing to live it out. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, I don't know. 50 plus years ago now, the Who ended one of their great anthems saying, meet the, bo- the new boss, same as the old boss. Well, it's a new empire. And it's the same old thing. Daniel might as well, you know say he won't be fooled again. The, this, I say, is the kind of capstone story of this narrative portion of Daniel because it really is. It's replaying almost, for almost all the other stories, some aspect of what's already happened. If you think back, of course, chapter 5 right before this was the fall of the Babylonian Empire, specifically because of the pride of the kings. And of course, Darius is caught by his own pride. If you think back to chapter 4, uh, there was, a, there was a, a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had had, and when it came to, to pass, just as Daniel said, he sent a letter out to the nations praising the God of Daniel, uh, just as Darius does at the end of this passage. In chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been given a command that they could not follow uh, without disobeying the Lord and had to refuse to follow it. Of course, we're thrown into a seemingly inescapable death and we're delivered from it, just as Daniel is in this story. Even back to chapter 1, at the very beginning when Daniel and his friends are brought as captives, they are trying to find a way to honor the king, but still be faithful to the Lord most of all. I mean, that is the great theme in some sense of Daniel, is is being caught in the cross pressures of all these demands, and yet, and yet being called to be faithful to the Lord 
uh, despite those pressures in different directions to disobey. Uh, So let's think then about that great theme, about what it means to live out our faith with various cross pressures. We'll see, of course, what the source of that pressure is, the danger of it, and and salvation from it. The source of the cross pressures, the dangers, and our salvation from them. So, the source of cross pressures is perhaps a little surprising. Now, again, we've, I've, as I've already said a couple of times, Daniel has witnessed a change of regime, a change of empire. The, the Medo-Persians or the Persians or they're sometimes they're called the Achaemenid dynasty, which is what they call themselves. That's a whole different thing. But uh, we typically call them the Persian empire uh, has arisen. Now, that actually brings up something here, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but uh, it may be helpful to you. Uh, we don't really know who Darius the Mede is. Uh, historically, outside of Scripture. Uh, He doesn't show up in any of the other historical records. Uh, So, one of the reasons I bring that up is because this this is a point at which many critics of the Bible would say, see, it is not trustworthy. Now, if you remember back again to chapter 5, you also might remember that for a long time we didn't really know who Belshazzar was. And then, of course, later archaeological evidence revealed that he was the crown prince who was actually ruling as king in Nabonidus' place who had gone into retirement. So, though he wasn't formally the king, he was really functionally the king. And we saw actually that that even illuminated the text a little more to discover that. So, the argument from silence is usually a pretty bad argument, especially with ancient history, <laughs> because we don't know what we don't know. Um, Of course, people have tried to explain this a few different ways, if you're interested. Uh, Some would say that verse 28 at the end actually should read, uh, during the reign of Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian, which is a possible reading, though not the most obvious and likely one, which would, so that would mean Darius is actually Cyrus. (laughs) These are the same guy. Uh, Others have said maybe Darius is simply a governor, but of course the word king is used. Probably the answer lies a little further afield. Uh, The Persian Empire had for a long time been off to the east of Babylon, or east is your way, that's your way, to the east of Babylon, and, uh, and had been a sort of collaborative effort of a bunch of relatively nomadic peoples. And it is true that Cyrus kind of unites them and really, really grows the empire. Uh, but most of what we know from this comes from Greek historians a couple of centuries later. And Herodotus gives us a kind of great man of history version of this. Cyrus rises up and takes control. Uh, Xenophon gives us a more nuanced political picture because the king of the Medes was actually Cyrus's father-in-law. And so, though Cyrus became the, the great kind of military power, that he was still very collaborative with the Medes. And so, it's possible that there's some shared power that goes on. That's a very complicated story about a bunch of history and politics that you probably don't care that much about. I just bring this up so that you understand there's a whole host of things that we don't actually really understand about who this guy could be. But what is clear from the text, 
is that this is another king, and he's falling into the same patterns. And yet, Daniel is still finding favor, which is another interesting aspect of this, that Daniel is consistent in his service. We actually know this about Daniel from the first few verses, those other officials that were plotting against him. It says that they couldn't find any ground to complain against him. That's up in verse 4 that we didn't read, but um, they couldn't find any ground. So, so they'd probably been sort of, you know, testing the fence, you know, like try, trying to find a weak point with Daniel for a long time. But then what they tell us in verse 5 is that the only way they're going to be able to find a way to trap Daniel is with the law of his God. That's the line they use in verse 5. In other words, what they know of Daniel is that he is concerned even above serving Darius, he is concerned with what God's Word says. And they know that he is consistent in going to the Lord in prayer. We're told that in verse 10, that three times a day he's praying, right? He's praying in the direction of Jerusalem. Now, there's nothing magical about that, but I think it's rather telling us something that we will learn more about in chapter 9, that Daniel's attention is focused on when will they go back? When will God's presence be with them again in the temple? Daniel is focused, in other words, on God's Word and on prayer and on the goal of all those things, being in the presence of the Lord. Those are the things that they know that they'll be able to trap him with, which means, and this is the takeaway from all this, that the source of the cross pressures that Daniel feels are not primarily the world around him, but his faithfulness to the Lord. That ought to be helpful for us because that ought to be orienting. I don't know if you've ever thought this way. I'm pretty sure most of us have at some point. But, it's, but we think that, boy, if, if we believed everything that God had to say, if we were living it out faithfully, then things ought to come easily. <laughs> In the truth of the Bible, that the Bible teaches us is the opposite. That actually the more faithful you're being to the Lord, the more you will actually feel the tensions of the expectations of others, the tensions of what we're told we should conform to, the tensions over our own ideas about what we would want, in listening to the Lord. Again, this is so counterintuitive for most, I think, of American Christianity. <laughs> because like most of American society, we think that what is good ought to be what comes easily. And the Bible is telling us it's not that. That in this world that is marred by sin. In you, (laughs) marred by sin, right? That to be faithful to the Lord actually will bring out more tension. You will feel the pressures of what you're supposed to conform to even more. 
one of the great lessons of Daniel, one of the great takeaways, is that faithfulness to the Lord is not marked by things going easily. That is a hard lesson. Uh, it is a hard-fought truth that those who are mature in the faith as they grow into it come to embrace. Because we've got to get honest, right? Our lives have… A, there are pressure to conform to a lot of different things, right? In your work, there's a pressure to conform to various expectations, and you are incentivized <laughs> to conform to them. Whether it is the standard of how your industry works, whether it is the culture of your company and organization, there are always ways in which we are encouraged to either cut corners or be less than honest with others, to be mercenary towards those we feel we're competing with. We go on and on about this. I, I can't enumerate all of the possible ways in which you might feel that. There's other things too. There are your family. Now, the hardest thing to acknowledge is actually when something's really messed up in your family. Because there are likewise incentives to not be honest with that. To not be honest about what's really happening here. There are all kinds of institutions and organizations that we're involved with, right? that we want, we want to think well of, and we want them to be good. And in fact, it's often in those situations that real dysfunction thrives, right? I mean, think of a few weeks ago, right? Another denomination had a giant scandal that burst about cover-ups of abuse because there's a pressure to want to ignore and sweep those problems under the rug without being honest about what's going on. It could be our community and our culture. I mean, this is the stuff of our public life, right? <laughs> yeah, we're not perfect, but at least we're not like those people and their agenda. Yeah, 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 we got some problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're not as bad as that, right? The thing that sustains Daniel, and this is so important to see, is God's Word and prayer. The thing that helps Daniel to actually see the world for what it is, to see his entanglements for what they are, is God's Word and prayer. It is in God's Word that we start to see the world the way that He sees the world. John Calvin used to use the metaphor of, you know, glasses. <laughs> They're spectacles. They're, it, is, it is the thing that readjusts the world. I'm, I'm, I'm nearsighted. <laughs> you know, I need glasses. Because otherwise the world's all distorted. <laughs> Some of y'all wear glasses. You know this phenomenon. Right? And so the idea of Scripture as glasses is so helpful because it, it brings the world into focus. What are 
fuzzy boundaries become a lot clearer. What is sort of a blob <laughs> comes into focus, right? What is indistinct, what we, cannot, what we don't really know is going on, all of a sudden we can tell what is happening. That's, the, that's what Scripture is. That's what Daniel is doing by going to God's Word is actually learning to see the world the way it really is. In prayer is the act of actually entrusting his life to the Father. And that's the primary thing with prayer, right? It's actually bringing your life to God and trusting it to Him. Learning that His ways are better than ours and we are much better in His hands than trying to scheme our own way out of everything. Obviously, you're making choices, right? You're still doing things. It's not that that turns over responsibility, but you recognize that there is more to it than what you can accomplish. And there always is. So, like, the source is actually Dan- of this tension is actually Daniel's faithfulness. The danger is the temptation to give in to that. And this is the second point. All these other officials are jealous of Daniel because they've got ideas of what they want to do. And Daniel is obviously in the way. I don't know what they want to do exactly, but they certainly want him out of the way. And what they prey on is Darius's vanity. So look, make the, pass this law that nobody can pray to anybody but you. I mean, if you already think of yourself as semi-divine, I mean, that's, it only makes sense, right? Of course. That sounds like a great idea. They should just pray to me, nobody else. And that is the temptation that Daniel has to resist all throughout the book of Daniel. And this is, again, yet another instance of that. That temptation to try to turn matters to his own will, to make what he wants to happen. And you could see how easily that would happen, right? okay, well, you know, I just won't pray (laughs) for a few weeks. If most of us are honest, that happens anyway from time to time, doesn't it? So, "Ah, I just just won't pray, right? And that, see, that way I won't be praying to Him. You know, so I'm not breaking the law in that way. You can see the temptation, right? Right? to try to take control of his situation, to try to change what he's doing, right? He's going to, that would be, there would be in some ways easy solutions in that regard. But of course, they're only easy solutions if what we're doing is really not seeking to honor the Lord above everything else, not seeking to be faithful to the Lord above everything else. It's only easy insofar as we're just willing to go along. And that really is, that's why the source of the tension is actually within the Christian. Because if you're willing to go along with what everybody wants, well, that's actually the easygoing way. 
Now, I'm not saying that doesn't cost you in the end. I'm not saying that that isn't costly in its own right. But if you want to feel like, boy, my life doesn't, isn't filled with tension over how I'm living it, then just do what everybody asks you to do. Go along with that. And you won't feel the tension for the moment. You may feel a lot of regret afterward for a whole host of different choices you make. You may have to deal with the consequences of it, but you won't feel that tension in the moment. The danger, you see, is always this, that our willingness to say, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this, but that willingness to try to find a way to wiggle out. You know, we, we've talked throughout this series about the reality of becoming a, an increasingly post-Christian society. But in that regard, is that worse than a more Christianized society? I mean, ask yourself this. In Charleston, is it, more, is it easier to be faithful to the Lord now or in 1950, when church attendance was through the roof? I mean, in certain regards, right, I mean, it's, 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 it would have been easier in 1950, but of course, in certain regards, you would have had to overlook overt mistreatment of half the population. So, was that easier? You see, while on the one hand, being in a post-Christian society means some of that distinction might come into focus, it doesn't mean that it's actually any different than the abiding condition of what it means to be faithful to the Lord. The question is whether we recognize it. And in fact, this might be a strange gift of being in a post-Christian society is, the, is that we learn to expect challenges to being faithful to the Lord. And in some ways, right, we, there's things to lament about, you know, the church, say, losing its significant place in society. And yet, on the other hand, if what we gain is clarity about what it means to be faithful to the Lord, maybe it's not so bad after all. Maybe in God's providence that will be a strange gift to us. Think for a moment, if we want to think about the danger here, think for a moment about a couple of issues that have come up in the news in recent weeks. Now, I'm going to say off the bat, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about public policy. I don't know about public policy. There are all kinds of questions about moving from a moral conviction to making something public policy, okay? There's a million steps in between. But think for a moment about the issues of abortion and gun violence that have come up over the last few weeks. Again, we're not talking public policy. Don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? But over and over and over again, the Bible is so clear about the value of human life. 
And yet almost all of us, almost all of us find it easy on one of those issues to say we should lament that, we should do something about that. And on the other issue say, yeah, I know that's bad, but… And I don't know which side of that equation you find yourself on. But I can tell you this, that wherever you find it easy to say, yeah, I know that's a problem, but I can tell you where you are falling prey to the pressures of this world. Wherever you find it easy to say, yeah, I know that's, I know that's an issue, but watch out. Watch out. Wherever we find it easy to turn away from lamenting evil, to push it to the back of our minds, wherever we find it easy to do that, I can tell you where you're succumbing to the pressures of this world. Daniel's friends were pressured to worship other gods. Daniel was pressured to worship other gods, to worship Darius. We are pressured to ignore God. The pressures are different, but as different as they are, they are still the same. To turn away from faithfulness to the Lord because it's easier, it's more convenient for the things that we want. And that is the great danger, is trying to play the game to get the outcomes we want in our pride, in our vanity, to think that we can play the game and the Lord will have none of it. What Daniel gives us a picture of is actually someone who has the courage not to play the game. And when it's costly, to accept the cost. But Daniel is not overcome. There is a salvation not only from those cross pressures, but even through it. So Daniel by verse 22, was thrown into the lion's den. And the king is worried about, about it, and he comes, you know, at some point, Darius realizes he's, been, realizes he's been duped. We know this because he turns around to those who hatch the plan and throws them in the, into the lion's den, right? He realizes at some point along the way, these guys did all of this to get me in a bad position to get a Daniel. Uh, he's obviously not happy about it. Maybe it was when he was up all night tossing a turn in his bed. I don't know. But he realizes that at some point he comes to Daniel, and we're told that Daniel survives. You know, you know if you have those children's Bibles, right, there's always, there's always these, like, lions, like, laying in Daniel's lap like there's, you know, house cats or something. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know if Daniel ever slept a wink in that. I have no idea. I, I have a hard time believing that. But uh, whatever the case is, the Lord delivers him, right? And what, however worried Daniel was all night, he's delivered. The Lord shows up. And Darius sings his praises in verses 26 and 27, that this is, a, this is the living God. Now, again, Darius here is, is a polytheist, just like all these other kings. It's not that he's saying, so there's no truth to any of the other things, and yet he has to recognize. And this is why he can change the law, right? It's because he has to recognize that a God is at work. One that is not limited the way so many of their, the, those gods seemed to be to a particular place or over a particular sphere of life. But rather, he watches over Daniel, even though he's far from Jerusalem. That he takes care of Daniel in all these different circumstances. It's a little bit hard to deny. I mean, the fact that Daniel kind of survives the regime change and ends up back on top of it. You know, I mean, there's all these kind of amazing things that happen to Daniel. And so, Darius is celebrating the living God. And did you notice that when Daniel is thrown in that den, thrown to his death, he's sealed with a stone. Stones rolled over the mouth of it. I'm not exactly sure what this looked like, if it was a pit <laughs> that he was tossed down into or, uh, you know, or whether it, you kind of enter from the side. It's not, it's unclear. But Daniel is thrown to his death and sealed. And God delivers it from him, delivers him from it. That ought to call to mind something that will happen in the future. But there is a big difference between Daniel as a good example for us and the one who was thrown to his death, who is our hope. Daniel was protected by God, but Jesus gave his life over to death for us. Jesus let himself be crushed by the powers of this world, by their demands, by the political powers, the religious institutions, for our sake. Jesus didn't avoid the difficulty. In fact, Jesus went into the jaws of death. Jesus went into the jaws of death to deliver us from the power of sin and evil over us, to pay the price for sin, to claim us back from the grip of sin, to defeat the power of Satan, to unmask the foolishness of this world in all of its schemes. And in all those things by His resurrection, Jesus has guaranteed that you will not be destroyed. You know, there are, it isn't that you might not have difficulty. No, in fact, to follow Jesus, to be like Him, is to know difficulty. In fact, if you do not know difficulty, you are not like Jesus. 
if you do not know what it's like to resist temptation, though it costs you, you have not become like Jesus. But the guarantee is not that this, however many decades you have, will not be hard. The guarantee that Jesus gives us is that we will be raised from the dead. That He has destroyed the power of sin and of death. The promise we have that is even clearer than Daniel had is that we can endure. And even if it costs us much, our confidence is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus. And that leads us to a whole host of conclusions, right? That one, we can relinquish control. I don't have to wrench control over my life and over every situation because I'm not in control in the first place. And the end is already guaranteed. I know what my faithful Savior has done for me and what He will do for me. It means that we can accept responsibility for our own failings because we are not destroyed by those either. Because Jesus has paid the price for them. We don't have to prove that we're right or that we're perfect. In fact, repentance ought to be a way of life for those who have confidence in what Jesus has actually done. It means we can hold on loosely to our plans and our commitments. Not that we don't pursue those things, but we know that at some point the Lord will have a twist or a turn that we have not seen coming. Some of you have had major twists and turns in your road. Some of you haven't. But they're coming. Because the Lord is not interested in the plans we have. He is interested in His plans. He is interested in His kingdom. And you're along for the ride. And it'll be worth it. But it may not be obvious in the moment. Where, what's going on or what you're supposed to learn from it. And we have every bit of confidence because God is a living God whose kingdom has no end because it has been purchased by the blood of Jesus and guaranteed by His resurrection. And He will not fail. So as we follow Him in faithfulness, His kingdom is being built. Even though we may not always understand how and why, And we can resist the pressures on our lives, even the fear of being devoured. I, you know, it, it struck me earlier this week that at the end of First Peter, he must be thinking about this passage. This is First Peter 5, starting at verse 6. Think about how many of these things relate to exactly what we've been talking about. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time you may, He may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, 
knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. There's so many of those themes, right? They're so obvious here. I can't… In the description of the devil as a lion, you cannot think that, Daniel, that Peter is not thinking at some level about this passage. And that is the calling, to humble ourselves, to cast all our anxieties on Him. Yes, be watchful. Be watchful. But know that He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you because He has guaranteed it by the body and blood of His Son shed for you and raised up for you. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would give us confidence in our Lord Jesus that in the midst of the pressures we feel to conform to this world and the pressures that we feel and the temptation that arises in ourselves and the pressures we feel even from the evil one, Lord, would you keep us faithful? Would you remind us that we are purchased by Jesus? Not only has he died for us, he has risen again, and his kingdom will not fail, for he, he is the living God who has accomplished everything in our place that we might be with him and with you forever and ever. Give us confidence and courage, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.